0: Hi, everyone. Uh, welcome back to Mad Hat Economics Podcast. Today, we have Matt Wallert, who is a behavioral scientist working at the intersection of technology and human behavior as our guest. A multi-exit entrepreneur and product expert, he is passionate about focusing on behavior as the outcome of everything we build. He is the author of Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change. And no matter where he is, Matt will be in cowboy boots and gesturing wildly. Welcome, Matt.
1: Hey, thanks for having me.
0: Along with him, we have our very own Professor Just from the Dyson School. So Matt, um, we'd like to know what got you interested in behavioral science, and what do you find most fascinating about this field?
1: Uh, So I had a really interesting entrance into the field, actually. So I um, was not thinking about psychology as I was going into college. And I uh, had an intro psych class that was ginormous and not Uh, not something that lured me in. But I happened to take a second psych class with um, Andrew Ward, uh, a professor at Swarthmore. And he was, um, he's hands down, he's a brilliant lecturer. Um, But I had a really particular formative experience. So he taught a class called the psychology of self-control. And in it, we reviewed the IAT, right? The implicit association test. And we read this paper and I thought, you know, I don't disagree with their 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 data, but I feel like they're drawing conclusions that are not backed up by the data itself. And so Andrew said something really interesting that I think was really empowering for me as a young person, which was, well, the rest of the field agrees with this interpretation, but this is science. And so if you wanna respond, there's an orderly way to respond, which is with your own data, right? It's running your own experiment and you're welcome to come to my lab and do that if you wanna sort of respond to this experiment. Right. And so it was one of the first things I ever ran. Um, one of the last things I ever published before leaving academia, because of course that's how the academic publishing cycle is, you know, first in, <laughs> last out. But, but uh, uh, it was really a beautiful experience for me, right? For someone who was a first-generation college kid who had come to academia um, sort of in, in, you know, in a non-traditional way, it felt really good to have somebody say, hey, like truth isn't who's most eloquent. Or whose highest status, or who's white, or old, or male, but rather truth is derived from something, and that you can respond in this dialogue of truth. And I think that was a real aha moment for me. And it's one of the things I really love about behavioral science. And you know, the other flip side of that is, you know, you said, why do I sort of love it so much? Um, I fundamentally believe that um, science, well applied, can change the world. And I think we've done that in many other you know, sort of physics, chemistry, biology sorts of domains. I don't think we've done that as clear as well in psychology and in human sciences. Um, Some of that's technological. We haven't had the ability to enact change at scale. Um, But some of it is just science and application. And so when I left academia, I really devoted the rest of my career to trying to get everyone to move towards behavioral science, which for me means behavior as an outcome, science as a process. Now, lots of people can debate that, right? We have behavioral economics, we have social psychology, we can have, do people need PhDs? Like those are all reasonable people can disagree kind of debates. For me, it's behavior as an outcome, science as a process. And so what I love about that is it's something anyone can learn, right? Like anyone can learn science, anyone can apply this method. And we all can learn how to put behavior first, it's just you know, a habit of mind. It's a, it's, a, it's a theory of how we approach knowledge. And so once we learn how to do that, you know, the janitor, like anyone can start to be like, well, if I mop this way, what happens? And if I mop that way, you know, like people can start to experiment with
2: the world around them. And
1: I just think that's incredibly powerful.
2: Wonderful experience you, you relate there. It's actually instructive to me in, in how I should be approaching my students to try and inspire them. Um, I, so it's interesting we've gotten to this this point, you know, you, you talked a little bit about um, about data and about, about how people can interpret it. We've gotten to this world where we have tons and tons of data about human behavior all over the place, right? Facebook is collecting massive amounts of information well beyond what I think most users recognize are being collected about them. Amazon has these giant farms of, of uh, you know, people analyzing data. They're, they're eating up economics PhDs right and left. When we started getting into this, there were a lot of economists that thought we're going to be able to solve a whole bunch of problems we couldn't before. But what's, I mean, I, from your point of view, what do you think is, is the challenge here with being able to actually use this data and what, what can we learn from it? What are, what are the things we can and can't do with it, I guess?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, in some ways behavioral science is a little like uh, the blockchain, yeah, uh, promised a lot. Nobody's really seen a lot come out of it, right? They're like, yeah, we're gonna, cl- we're gonna solve crops and it's just the world will run and everything in the world will run on this trusted blockchain network. And I'm like, yeah, it's been 10 years. Where's the blockchain network, man? Um, and I sort of feel like behavioral science the same thing, right? Like it really came out of the gate strong, you know, getting a Nobel Prize and doing those sorts of things. And then, and then I think people are like, well, where's all the, where's all the stuff, you know? In particular during this era of COVID, right? Like there's been, you know, Cass Sunstein has taken a lot of fire for like, you know, one article after another, people being like, well, you were wrong, and then you were wrong, and then you were wrong again, and then you were wrong again. And what they don't recognize is like, you know, cats. Cass is trying to talk about a phenomenology, right? He's trying to talk about like, you know, within these bounds in this individual place. So I actually don't think it's about churning out more economics PhDs. I actually think that we're missing to, behavioral science to me happens sort of in a triumvirate, right? It's it's quantitative science, it's qualitative science, and then it's, it's intervention, right? Like science doesn't exist without intervention. You have to change something in the world and observe the changes that then occur because of that change. And so, I think we've done a reasonable job of beefing up on data science, getting the data structured, ordered, able to, you know, there's always more work to do there, but I think we're in a reasonable place. What I don't think we've done very well is learning to observe people naturalistically and draw insight that, that, that can be used to cross validate, right? Data tells you what, not why, right? And so you need to take that what into the world and find out why and have that feedback mechanism. And then you need to build something out of it. And I think that's actually the most key part that people have been missing is, you know, all of the insights in the world, and I think every data scientist that hears this will sort of cringe and and, and know this feeling, you know, they, they go through this work, they create this insight, and then, you know, senior leaders, usually affluent white males, say, yeah, that's great, I wanna do the thing I wanna do. And then they just do the thing they wanna do, right? And like, everyone has this experience of, of generating an insight and then having it be totally ignored because people have this confirmation bias and they just wanna do the thing they wanna do. And I think that that, As long as that remains true, as long as we have leaders who are unwilling to hold ideas up to scrutiny, then we'll be in the same place. I mean, I think, you know, without delving into politics too much, one of the hallmarks of our current presidency is its um, desire not to be held to scrutiny, right? For decisions to 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 be taken on faith and not scrutinized, right? Because I say it is the way it is, it is the way it is. And I think as long as that kind of leadership style dominates American business, American culture, that's, you have to be willing to be wrong. Like science is based on the willingness to be wrong. So I think to me, it's, it's not about the lack of data. It's not about you know big data lakes and all of the problems of structuring data. I think those aren't solved. They'll never be solved, but they are, are in a good enough place where the lagging mechanism now is intervention. The ability to take those insights Try pilots, be scrutinous about
2: those pilots. Um, yeah, it's that it's that vital next step of just recognizing you've got to intervene to get some some actual validity out of out of the data, right? Otherwise, it's all just associations and who knows what's going on behind right. it. Yeah. Well, and 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 you know,
1: populations are we don't have so much data that we can be perfect, right? And so Without an experiment, you really have no idea. You know, I love um, Dan Egan over at Betterment's. You know, work and he he tracks. You know, how often his behavioral science team implements something that came from the lab, and then how often it actually works in the real world. And you know, the, the batting average is not good, right? Because you know, what works in the lab when exposed to complicated humans in a particular situation in a particular population in a particular moment, right? You know, it's not great. And so that doesn't mean that we should just abandon behavioral science. I don't think that's the conclusion. I think the conclusion is wholesale taking something that you saw in one case and then porting it into a new environment is almost certainly not gonna work, right? And so if you think of those at the end of the spectrum, people are completely irrational, completely random, you know, nothing can be t- comported across, across perspectives versus people are completely deterministic and they, you know, when I flip the switch, they flip the switch and like whatever I think is true will be true. Behavioral science is the messy middle, right? It's the place in the middle where we acknowledge that human beings are, human behavior is shaped by pressures, but that those pressures are not always visible to us. I sometimes note the um, walking into a spiderweb effect, which is if you see someone walk into a spiderweb from a block away, they look like a crazy person, right? Because they're just going all over and they're like, oh my God, you look at them and you're like, that person is schizophrenic, right? Something is wrong with this person. But it's only because you can't see the spider web. If you could see those invisible pressures, you that's a totally rational response, right? And so this messy middle is about acknowledging that, that we can see some of the pressures. We've mapped some of the pressures, we have not mapped all of the pressures, and so there will inevitably be variance because we have not mapped all of the pressures and because pressures vary between people, right? So once I take into a you know a non homogeneous population pressures vary. And so they'll always be this messy middle. And I think trying to eliminate it is just
2: who are you've done a fair amount of work with uh, with health insurance and in that sort of space. I, tell me about the messy middle when it comes to health outcomes. What, uh, what are the things that can be done, and what are the effective strategies in, in this space?
1: Yeah, I mean, I think that that experimentation is the effective strategy, right? Uh, the, the worst, you know, it's, it's the we all know this, right? The worst thing that you can get is the, you know, we've tried that before and it failed and so we're not willing to try anything new, right? We just do the same thing. Um, I think experimentation is the key add to, to any kind of health outcome behavior. Um, I do think um, one of the most uh, sort of underutilized things in health is heterogeneity. Um, I think we're seeing this now in COVID, right? People are like, ah, yeah. Like people seemed, I was having a conversation with a friend of mine, um, Andre, who runs Onboard Health, which is uh, a health uh, uh, recruiting agency that focuses on on underrepresented health workers. Um, And so he and I were laughing this week that people suddenly seem to have woken up and realized that like, hey, maybe black people might not have exactly the same health outcomes as as their white counterparts. Uh, and both of he and I are sort of aghast that people are only now realizing this, right? Like obviously that, you know, medicine treated everyone this homogeneity, even for example, the drugs that we develop, right, are developed on a homogenous population. Um, I worked at Clover Health and one of the great things about Clover is, as compared to the average Medicare Advantage plan, it was very different. with twice as many people, many people of color, twice as many people living in poverty, twice as many people who didn't graduate high school, twice as many people who didn't speak English. So you look at something like diabetic retinopathy, excuse me, diabetic retinopathy. I can say that, diabetic retinopathy. And the drugs that are developed, right, and the procedures that we developed to combat things like diabetes were largely developed on white people, generally affluent white people. And so, you know, you they work-ish for affluent white people, but then when you port them to other populations that are facing other kinds of challenges, suddenly they don't work as well, which is not surprising. And I think that like, the biggest thing, so experimentation and the acknowledgement of uh, non-homogenous populations and recognizing heterogeneity
2: and being willing to grapple with heterogeneity. um, And I I mean, is part of that trying to ferret out how much of the heterogeneity is is physical and how much is behavioral? Yeah, I mean, it's an interesting, so it's it's a
1: great point, right? Like, um, you know, African-Americans are genetically different than Caucasian Americans, right? But they also have a whole set of cultural practices and a cultural dietism and interaction with their environment that is different than than the average Caucasian American, white American. And so um, I always, you know, there's a reason I wrote a book called Start at the End. The thing I always said to my team was, look, if I could snap my fingers and make everybody healthy, I'd do it, right? This is the difference between academia and sort of applied science, right? I am, academia is Gnostic. It does not, we can't publish papers that say, this thing happens and I don't know why, right? Uh, snapping your fingers is not good enough in academia because, because the, the output of academia is Gnostic. Right? We are applied scientists, we care about application. And so if I could snap my fingers and, and magically cure everyone, I would, right? And so I do these things, then these people come out the other end healthier. And that is really all I care about. Um, And so the other thing that I think matters in that distinction is I can't change people's genetics, right? At the current time, I can't reach in and change lots of things for people. And so even if there is a genetic component, even if there is a physical component, because I cannot change that, it behooves me to pretend that it does not exist, right? And instead to focus on the thing that I can change, which is in fact behavioral. And, And the nice thing about health right now is Maybe someday, 100 years from now, that will be our biggest problem is that like, we've, we've conquered all the behavioral problems and it's now just purely physical and purely genetic. But at this point, there's so much upside, right? You know, we vaccination rates, flu vaccination rates in the United States are like, you know, 50% or lower, right? People die totally unnecessary deaths because we can't manage to figure out this incredibly easy behavioral thing. Um, and so I hope someday we get to the point that. That genetics and 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 physicality is you know the sort of most important lever, but I,
2: at least from my perspective,
1: we have lots of headroom on the behavioral side.
2: Yeah, I I, I suspect that's the case. I I, uh, I know from my work with food pantries and food assistants, you you start to face huge differences between cultures, but also just you know different challenges depending on the family structure and things like that, that, that aren't necessarily apparent until you start pulling it apart and, and looking very, very thoroughly at the details of the behavior. Yeah, and that
1: pulling apart requires, that's why I said, I think there's an, it has to be an acknowledgement of heterogeneity, right? But yeah. no one, pull, there's no reason to pull it apart if you just assume everybody's the same. But right, if you are willing to engage with the fact that people are different, then you can start to pull at those threads. And so Geisinger's work with food pantries, right? Other people's work with, you know, sort of doing food scarcity stuff at scale. And that's where cognitive bias comes in, right? Like we have this tendency to assume, you know, the first thing I really wrote when I came to Clover, uh, both publicly and privately internally was, we have to stop assuming that it's people's fault, right? Um, We have to stop assuming it's a promoting pressure problem, right? There is this actor observer bias where, everything bad about my behavior is due to the environment and everything good is because I'm a good person. Everything bad about other people's behavior is because they're bad people and everything good about them is because they were pressured into it by their environment, right? Like this is beautiful self-serving bias. And if we don't step back from that, if we don't acknowledge that that there's, it's a much more complicated landscape, right? I don't think that you can talk about modern healthcare policy without acknowledging the legacy of slavery in our country. Like people are like, what do those two have to do with each other? And I'm like, are you kidding me? I'm like. Tuskegee was not that long ago, right? So people are like, why aren't African-Americans getting flu shots? Well, let's see, we have this thing that only sort of works. It actually works, it actually works 100% of the time, right? In that it protects you against some flus, but it doesn't guarantee you won't get the flu, which is what, generally what we think of, sh- of working as. If you get a tetanus shot, it's 99.9% effective, right? Yeah. The flu shot is not. So you get this shot, it's not perfectly effective. It changes every year. So it's like weirdly variable, right? Uh, it, it, you know, you hear a lot about it, but you don't really understand why it is. Like if you and and someone, if, if people who looked like you had been recently sort of exposed to syphilis, right? In order to like test things at a giant level, right? Potentially killing you and your future generations, you too would be somewhat reticulant about like, hey, maybe I don't want this like sort of weird variable unknown shot that I don't truly understand. Like that's, nothing that we do is without historical legacy. Nothing doesn't, you know, behaviors are situated in these histories. And so I think, you know, it would just be foolhardy for us to continue to, to go down this path where we don't acknowledge that to your point, situations are different and we have to address those differences.
2: Absolutely. I, so, bring this. This is actually pretty relevant to what's uh, what's going on today. I mean, you brought it up in this context a couple of different ways, but I, I'm just interested to uh, hear what you might have to say about what what can we learn from behavioral science that would be important in addressing COVID nineteen right now. Yeah, I mean that's the. That is a question I spend a lot of time on. I
1: am spending a disproportionate amount of my time with governments and organizations these days. Um, da- dadding during the day, fighting COVID at nights, and then sleeping <laughs> somewhere in between. Um, because really, most of the COVID things, until we get biological solutions, until we get you know vaccines and better drug regimens and those sorts of things, most of the answers that we have are in fact behavioral. right? Washing hands, quarantining, social distancing, mask wearing, you know, or face covering wearing, et cetera. Um, and so there's been a ton of work um, to to try and figure out what those behaviors are. I think one of the hard parts has been, uh, you know, there's a little bit of academics weighing in and being like, hey, this is a great experimental playground. And I'm like, sure, but we do actually have to save soft people. You know, we have to save lives right now. So like maybe this is not the greatest time to run a study that I've yeah, ever seen. There's
2: something a little morbid about that.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's... Uh, I, we need to run studies in that we need to figure out the answers, and the answers we need experimentation in order to figure out the answers. But those are different than Gnostic studies, right? We're not, you know, the there's a great I was running COVID, I promise. But there's a great since you brought up statistics earlier, um, there's a question I always ask data scientists as they come onto my team, and it is, um, if imagine I had an intervention p. point two, p. point two, what should we do? And Inevitably, because they're well-trained data scientists, they're like, throw it out the window. Um, for the not stats relevant folks uh, in, in, in the audience, p.2 means there's a four in five chance that whatever I observed is real, and a one in five chance that it, it is not real, that it is completely bogus, right? And the, the, t- the typical definition that we use in academia is p less than 0.05. So there's a 19 in 20 chance I'm right, and a one in 20 chance that it's not real. And I say, well, wait a minute. Uh, I didn't even tell you what the intervention is. It costs a penny to manufacture. It uh, melts on your tongue. It's very easy to swallow. It's a tiny pill. Um, mm-hmm. Tastes like you know, rainbows and unicorns and instantly cures all form of cancer with no side effects. So there's a four in five chance I just cured all cancers with one pill for a penny, and a one in five chance I didn't. So maybe we should keep going right? And at least interrogate this, not just throw it out immediately because it didn't meet some arbitrary statistical definition, right? Like, we have to be, applied science is very different than academic science. And so I think that, like, you know, academic scientists who are sort of wading in into COVID, I'm like, oh, remember, like, applied rules. <laughs> We're going to use the applied rules here. Um and care so about the outcomes. Yeah. We <laughs> care about the outcomes, and the outcomes we need to move quickly, and we need to be thoughtful, and we need to, like, You know, we're not doing a six-month study. We need to be, we need to move much more expeditiously than that. Um, One of the interesting things is we do have a little bit of a natural experimentation, right? Because this has been approached in such a fragmented way across the globe, we have lots of different kinds of messages that have been tried, right? This is a a perfect place for meta-analyses, right, where we can start to look at all the different kinds of outcomes. Um, I think that, you know, there are lots of things that seem, relatively easy, but that people have had trouble uh, getting executional stuff done, right? So, for example, a regret lottery would keep people inside pretty well, right? If, you know, if we said, hey, I'm going to, you know, pick 100 random people and I'm going to give them $1,000 piece, right, every day of COVID, uh, and if they've left their house, they don't get the money, well, people will not leave their houses, right? We know this to be true. It's been very robust in applied studies. But, and that's not even that logistically hard to figure out, but what has been hard is that people are executionally paralyzed, right? I think what this, what COVID has, has exposed um, in no uncertain terms is just how fragmented our economy, just how fragmented our government, like the inability to sort of coordinate is shocking. Um, and e- even from leaders, like, you know, there's been a lot of Trump bashing on, on Twitter and places. Sure, but did we expect anything different from him? Right, I'm not sure that like we thought like, we, he very publicly defunded things, right? I don't think he was, had any mixed messages about what he was doing, right? The thing that has actually shocked me is the people who I would have thought would have been better and then suddenly weren't, right? As little as a week ago, right, de Blasio and Cuomo couldn't agree on whether we were closing schools for the year or not, right? The mayor of the largest city in a state and the governor of the state, like, didn't manage to coordinate about a fairly basic thing. Like that kind of executional error is like costing us a lot of lives, right? A lot of lives.
2: Their conflict has been fascinating, just absolutely
1: fascinating to watch. And so that's why I go back to the like, you know, we talked earlier about like what's missing, you know, we got, we have all these stats people, like what's missing from this equation. I said PMs, right? Like it is about, there has to be some executional diligence and excellence in, in testing, Intervention, you know, deploying interventions, testing them rigorously, you know, sort of deciding which ones work and then scaling them. Otherwise, it doesn't really matter. Right. Like, you know, uh, there was a lovely article today where NPR had sort of interrogated each of the promises that Trump had made that he was, you know, he listed off this checklist of things that, he, you know, I'm working with private industry on X and I'm doing these things. And they're like, well, how many of these actually happened? And, and you look at them and like they're little pilot studies here and there, but very little done at scale almost, it's kind of shocking actually, almost nothing has been done at scale in the United States with regard to to Corona or COVID, right? Virtually nothing. We have not managed to coordinate on what stay at home means. We've not coordinated on whether people should be wearing face coverings. We like, you know, got hand washing. Everyone knows that washing their hands is a good idea. So I guess we sort of got that deployed at scale, but it's not like we dropped off bars of soap at every, you know, at every house in America. Right, it seems shocking to me that we're what eight weeks into this. Eight weeks into this, we can't manage to bi- deliver basic supplies to absolutely everyone. Right, like we can't manage to just like manufacture enough alcohol-based hand sanitizer and just like drop it off house by house. We can't figure that out. Yeah, in eight weeks, two months, man, two months. I can do almost anything in two months. Right, like I can build. You know, working 24-7, you can build almost anything in two months, right? We can certainly do some of these very basic things. And I think the execution, you know, who's going to pay for it? How's it? Like, just do it. It's not that hard.
2: Yeah. I, did, I, I worry a bit that the sort of behavioral patterns we had fallen into before this hit are a lot of why, a lot of why we fail at trying to coordinate right now. We just, we are not used to working together. We don't used to
1: work work, together on things. And it's also that we have, you know, this bizarre American obsession with choice, right? Going back to sort of the root of this podcast, right? America is so, so, so obsessed with choice. And I think what COVID has sort of of, um, uh, revealed is how much that choice actually costs us. Right. If we were willing to say everybody gets the same kind of toilet paper and everybody gets the same kind of hand sanitizer and everybody gets the same 12 basic foods, it would not be that hard to deliver 12 basic foods to everybody. Right. But it's the notion that everyone should have agency and choice that prevents our response from really, really being coordinated in a a sort of fulsome way. Um, And so, you know, I think coming out of this, there will need to be a real conversation that is had around, particularly the choices around basic services, right? Like, you know, should should everybody in the country, you know, we talk about, it's really interesting, you know, we've been proposals around universal basic income and other sorts of things that, that are, are about, that preserve choice. And the question is, should we be preserving choice? Because there is very real things that go on with economies of scale, right? If I could, if, if I, as, you know, the, as someone who has access to how much we have of thing A and how much we have of thing B, decide how we distribute thing A and thing B, we will almost certainly reach a better distribution max than if we just like arbitrarily let everybody like rush to thing A and thing B, particularly when we don't have enough of them and they're not evenly distributed. And you know, all of the things that COVID has brought into sharp relief. I don't know how much you've been following the news around sort of like housing projects in New York City, but I just think it brings into sharp relief like, you know, if you, yeah, find this choice parable, this like narrative that freedom is choice really works out for affluent people. But if you're not, it, you know, is literally killing people day by day, right? Our inability to say, okay, we're going to set aside the need for maximal choice in order to create other kinds of opportunity.
2: Very good. So, um, Moving on. um, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about this uh, project. I've heard about uh, get raised.com. Sure. uh, Go ahead.
1: Yeah. So this was um, uh, a project that we, that has been going on for a long time now. Um, Basically what we were trying. So my first startup, um, I worked for a guy named Avi Karnani and, and we're two great founders uh, and was in the personal finance space and So I had access um, to people's personal finance data, real data. And I could see how vividly women were being underpaid, right? Because I can see the checks come in. I mean, I can just see the gender of the people. I can see the checks. I know at scale, women are just not being paid equivalently. And so, you know, for software that was about budgeting and personal finance, we only only intervened after you got your money. And there's... so many things you can do once the, like, if there's a 20% pay gap for, for white women and a 50% pay gap for Hispanic women and then ranges in between, like, if you're making half as much as you should make, there is no amount of budgeting that I can do that will get you back to where other things should be. And so, after we sold uh, uh, Thrive to Lending Tree. Um, the next thing we created as a side project was how do we change the amount of money that's actually coming in the door? And so we built this tool for women and, and people of color called Get Raised, which helps them actually figure out if they're underpaid, make a market-based case for why they should be, be paid fairly, right, sort of using statistical data, open job postings, how they brought business value, so changing some of their language. Um, and it's actually a very simple process. It, it is essentially in the back end, just a, a Mad Lib style letter, and then as they answer questions, it fills in the letter. And it turns out when you flip that paradigm, right, so we go from uh, lean in or promoting pressure things, hey, you should really want it, right, to reducing inhibiting pressures, just making it easier to do, right, because everybody wants fair pay, right? Like nobody's like standing up and being like, yeah, I want to get paid less because I'm a woman, right? I want to get paid less because I'm black. Like nobody's saying that, right? And so it's not a promoting pressure, it's an inhibiting pressure problem. So when we flip that paradigm, um, it actually has been very effective. And so you know, we've helped people earn about 3.2 billion dollars in raises so far. Um, average raise success is about 80 percent if you hand in the letter. And, and it's pretty impressive. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, for a very simple tool, it's been it's been super effective and 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 a lot of fun. And it does show, you know, there's work out of my lab where uh, people have this weird bias um, where when we when we want people to do something more, like ask for a raise more often. We have, a, we have a weird bias where we, we default to promoting pressure. So we default to solutions that are about encouragement or motivation. Um, when in reality, most of the upside is on inhibiting pressure, right? Uber showed this very neatly, right? I don't have to make a better car experience. I just have to make it easier and cheaper and, and more effective and more efficient and then all people will use it, right? And so um, I think that, that there's tons of, tons and tons and tons of upside on the inhibiting pressure side that is just totally untapped.
0: Great. Uh, That was a very interesting conversation. Thank you so much. Um, Thank you so much for joining us, Matt. And thank you so much, Professor Just.
1: Thanks for having me.